Good morning, friends. So good to be here with you today. Special privilege um, to be together, worshiping our Lord and Savior and uh, bringing all of our concerns to Him together as we uh, gather uh, in this place. I began to introduce the Gospel of Mark by telling you that Jesus came to deal with our chaos and that God has been dealing with chaos since the Garden of Eden, right? It's, it's nothing new to him. Uh, he's well-versed in dealing with chaos in our lives. And if we've learned anything as a human race, it's that sin brings chaos. I don't know if you put those two things together yet in your experience, but uh, chaos always follows closely on the heels of sin in our lives. In the same way that sin brought chaos to the garden, it brings chaos to our homes, our places of employment, our schools, our churches, our relationships, our politics, our cosmos. Um, one of the great forms of chaos, of course, is death, which began in the garden. This is what God told Adam and Eve would happen if they sinned, death. Paul called death an enemy, of course, and death is the ultimate chaos, right? Is there any greater form of chaos than death? And it seems like at Sun Valley Church, we've had our share of death here lately. April Smith, Beverly Van Ostrom, Joe Vicker's sister just this week, past week rather. Some of you knew that Rick Van Beek also, who didn't attend here, but many of us knew him. He also died yesterday. Sin wreaks havoc on us. And death, of course, is chaos. My dad passed away yesterday also. Um, he was 90 years old. My younger brother was there with my mom, and he was taking some pictures of my mom with my dad as she was comforting, comforting him at the end. Um, and when I saw those pictures, I saw chaos. I saw an elderly woman comforting her dying husband. That's chaos at its deepest level. But <laughs> praise be to God, he has an answer for our chaos. We're going to unpack Mark's record of the baptism of Jesus today. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I want you to open it to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. This is an important part of the story of how God will ultimately deal with the chaos in our lives and in our world. Jesus' baptism gives us insight into how God's going to do this. How he's going to address chaos is seen here in these three verses, familiar verses. I'm going to go to Colorado this week to be with my family and we'll miss next Sunday here. But when I return, uh, Lord willing, I will tie the problem of chaos and God's solution again to what we see next in this passage, which is the temptation of Christ. And it's beautiful the way the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write this in, in a, a place, a world where chaos is running rampant. We have a Savior, and He, and He alone, answers our chaos. So today we're going to focus here in these three verses, verses 9 through 11, 
which plays a significant role in the whole story of God's solution to human chaos. Listen, follow along as I read, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So verse 9 states that Jesus came from Nazareth, which was a very small town in northern Israel, in Galilee. Uh, it was unthinkable for most Jews, especially Jews in the south, uh, to consider that the Messiah would come out of Galilee. Uh, Galilee, of course, had been, in the Jews' mind, infected by Gentiles back in Joshua's day. Uh, they never really got rid of the Gentiles that lived there as they were supposed to. And then again later in 722 B.C., uh, in the Assyrian captivity, um, Assyria settled it with more Gentiles. And so Jews despised those people up north and disdained anyone from that area. And to consider or to think it possible that the Messiah would come from there was <laughs> unthinkable. And yet the prophet Isaiah stated the Messiah would come from the north. Listen, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Where are they? The provinces of those two. The north, right? But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The Messiah was coming from the north, from Galilee. And here we see in verse 9, Jesus coming from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And so coming from Nazareth, that, that humble region would be a rebuke to the corrupt religious system that dominated Judaism of that day, especially in Jerusalem. What? <laughs> the, the promised Messiah is coming from that disgusting place? No way. Uh, that's, that's exactly what happened, though. And since Jesus lived there in Galilee, he traveled south to the area where John was baptizing that we just heard read from Matthew 3. It isn't completely clear exactly where John was specifically baptizing, but it was most likely in the lower Jordan Valley near Bethany, um, near um, Jericho, the Dead Sea area down there. And whether or not John and Jesus knew each other is debated, but uh, it does seem that they grew up in different parts of Israel. John in the south in the Judean wilderness where he was baptizing. And Jesus, of course, born in Bethlehem, which is in the south, but immediately traveling to where? First two years of his life, Egypt, right? And then where? His parents moved to Nazareth. His dad must have gotten a job there or something. But he moved his family to Nazareth. So Nazareth is up here. Um, this Judean countryside is south. So whether or not they knew each other is debated. Um, but we can't be sure about his relationship with John, that is, Jesus' relationship with John. Some believe he, they did know each other. Some believe they didn't. It says in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 33, that John the Baptist did not know Jesus. But that could, have, that could be interpreted to mean that he was never really closely acquainted with him because of the word that was used by the Apostle John. 
It could have meant that it had been such a long time since they had seen each other that John didn't recognize him. It could mean that, that John didn't realize that this was the Messiah until the baptism event of Jesus. And so there are good arguments for and against the familiarity they had with one another. Um, but it seems that John would have known that his cousin was to be the Messiah because of what <laughs> Jesus' mother told Elizabeth, right? When they got together when they were both pregnant. Mary essentially announced to Elizabeth that she was carrying the Messiah. And so, presumably, uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, would have said so to her son. We think. We're not told, but we think that's possible, likely. And then, of course, John would know because of what the angel told his mom, Elizabeth, that he was the forerunner. He was going to be the guy that announced the Messiah. And, of course, none of this is said. It's just presumed. That's why there's the debate. People like debating, so they debate about things that we don't know. Right? <laughs> but instead of spending time uh, focusing on speculation this morning, let's focus on what's revealed. Is that a good idea? It always is. It always is. To focus on what's revealed. What's revealed, I just read for you, verses 9 through 11, and we just heard Jesse read from Matthew 5. That's what's revealed about their relationship and about the baptism of Jesus. So, let's look at two things here this morning that I think will show you how Jesus, how the, the story of God coming to this planet addresses the chaos that we all face, all right? How Jesus deals with chaos. So two things that I wanna show you from the passage this morning, the purpose of Jesus's baptism and the message of Jesus's baptism. Let's first look at the purpose. Why was Jesus baptized? Was it for the same reason that you and I are baptized? Was Jesus baptized for the same reason that the people of Israel were being baptized by John the Baptist? Well, what was, Jesus, what was John's baptism? A baptism of repentance. Did Jesus need to repent of anything? Why not? He's God. <laughs> he never sinned, so there was no repentance. It wasn't the same purpose for their baptism or our baptism. It was different. So why was Jesus baptized? His baptism, listen, his baptism was about identifying with those he came to save. It was about identifying with those he came to save. He placed himself among the guilty when he entered the waters of baptism. Isaiah 53, 12, listen to this. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, speaking of the Messiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors. How was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? We know he was numbered with the thieves on the cross when he died with them, but here in the baptism, he was numbered with us, the transgressors. He was associating with the guilty when he entered in the waters of baptism. He took on our sin in his baptism. This is where the transfer took place. How did that happen? Do you remember how sin was transferred from the sinner to the innocent animal in the Old Testament? You remember that? When they brought a sin offering to the tabernacle or to the temple, what happened? 
The sinner placed his hands on the head of the animal to be sacrificed and symbolically transferred their sin to that innocent, innocent animal. So when that animal died, their sin was covered. Here, Jesus, the Lamb of God, enters into the waters of baptism, identifying with us guilty ones, and John the Baptist, God's man, put his hands on Jesus and transferred the sins of his people to their Savior. What a beautiful picture. This is what Jesus was doing when he entered the waters. John was symbolically transferring the sins of the world to Jesus so that when he went to the cross, he took with him the sins of those he would save. Jesus said, this is what he was doing, fulfilling all righteousness. All right, fulfilling all that God had intended the Lamb of God to accomplish, all righteousness. So this is what the first purpose of the two was, to fulfill all righteousness. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 3.15. Jesus answered John when they started debating whether or not John should baptize Jesus or Jesus baptized John. Jesus said, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented when he realized what was happening. So Jesus knew that the Messiah was to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John also knew this. Remember how he introduced Jesus in John chapter 1? Behold, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus knew the Messiah would be sinless. How did Jesus know that the Messiah would be sinless besides the fact that he was God? Well, what was required of the Old Testament sacrifices? To be spotless, right? Which was a picture of sinlessness. All Old Testament sacrificial animals needed to come spotless. They couldn't bring in a blind sheep or a, a goat that had a broken leg or a pigeon that was, you know, de-winged. They had to bring in a whole spotless animal for the sacrifice to be effective, to be received by God as payment for sin. Jesus knew this. Jesus had his Old Testament memorized. He knew what sacrificial lambs were about. He knew he was the sacrificial lamb, and so he knew he must be sinless. He knew that this lamb would take on the sins of the people, and so he could not have his own sin. Friends, what we see here in the baptism is an assurance that your sin, my sins, all of them, past, present, and future, were transferred to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing to know for sure that all my sins, not just the ones I've committed, but the ones I will commit, were transferred to my Savior in the waters of baptism on this day in southern Judea. Amazing. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God, to fulfill all righteousness. We might become the righteousness of God by what Jesus did for us, 
taking on our sin and nailing it to the cross of Calvary. Which is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Colossians 2.14. Listen to what is going on or what went on in, in the Calvary record. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he, Jesus, set aside by nailing it to the cross. John MacArthur said, the one who had no sin publicly identified himself with those who had no righteousness. That's what was going on here in this amazing story that we're looking at right now. So when Jesus was lowered into the water, it symbolized his death, right? That's what we talk about when we baptize people here. It's, it's a symbol of dying to self. Of course, Jesus was just symbolizing his own death at that point. And then when he was raised out of the water, it symbolized his resurrection, both for the sins of he, those he came to save. His death and resurrection. He was immersed in the river of death. That's what Bunyan called it, the river of death in Pilgrim's Progress. Jesus was submerged in the river of death, the Jordan, in order to bear the sins of those who would believe in him. He, he came out of the water, representing coming out of the tomb, to guarantee our eternal life. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, because I live, you will also live. Because I came out of the tomb, pictured by coming out of the water, you too will come out of the tomb one day. There's a cue for you. This is how Jesus solves our most significant chaos. There's more that I will say next, well, next time I preach, uh, about fulfilling all righteousness when we look at the temptation of Jesus. And, you know, the temptation of Jesus, as limited as it is here in Mark, the record of it is, it is profound on what we see. And I'm anxious to, to preach that to you. But here we see that Jesus intended to fulfill all righteousness by being our righteousness, by transferring his righteousness to us as we transfer our sin to him. Second thing, or second purpose that we see in the baptism of Jesus was to authenticate Jesus in his ministry. To authenticate Jesus in his ministry. The focus of Mark's record is this in Jesus' baptism, the authentication of Jesus' person and ministry. Who was Jesus? This story tells us. What did he come to do? The story tells us. His person and ministry here are authenticated, identified and authenticated. Mark wrote that God the Father, a voice from heaven, affirmed Jesus' identity and mission to mankind here in these short verses. You know, we have an impressive Trinitarian scene right here in front of us. Uh, many commentators see this as the Messiah's royal commissioning. It was the divine inauguration of, of his public ministry, of the new covenant, of the kingdom of God. And there are two parts to this divine authentic authentication. All right? First is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Right? What came out of the, the heavens that were torn open? We just read it. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came and landed on the Son. The Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, comes 
in an anointing way and landed on the Son, anointing his public ministry, anointing his person for public ministry. This is, this is beautiful. It was here for all to see. There's been an, an argument on whether or not Jesus was the only one who witnessed it. It may have been in form of a vision or whether it actually was visible for all to see. And it seems to me, and it seemed to the Apostle John, that it was visible for all to see. It says in John 1.32 that John the Baptist said he witnessed the event. So it wasn't a vision. <laughs> it wasn't a vision for Jesus alone. It was a visible event. John saw it, Jesus saw it, and presumably all who were standing around saw it. The anointing of the Holy Spirit on this Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. The scene was amazing to all who were there, but it shouldn't have been a surprise to those who were expecting and awaiting the Messiah. We're told that this very thing would happen, that the Holy Spirit would descend and anoint the Messiah. Isaiah 42, beyond, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Listen, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This was expected of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit would come upon him. And here we see it in Mark 1, 9 through 11. And of course, the title Christ, we know what that means, right? The anointed one. And here we see the anointing, the human anointing. This was Jesus' earthly anointing, public declaration of his Messiah kingship, if you will. This was an anointment on his humanity to empower and give authority to his ministry. Who gives you the right to say these things, the Pharisees asked. And of course, Jesus didn't answer him directly, but he could have said, how about this, God, go ask John. Go ask those who watched. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a messianic passage referring to the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. Sent me to bring, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to, to those who are bound. Sounds like solving chaos to me. Just so we're not confused and wonder if this was the first time the Holy Spirit entered Jesus, it wasn't. Remember his birth, <laughs> right? Remember how that all took place. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in his birth, his youth, his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, his miracles, death, and resurrection. At every point in Jesus' life, he was overwhelmed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit all throughout his earthly journey. This is important. He never resisted, never sinned against, never grieved the Holy Spirit his entire life. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is internal. So the Holy Spirit would have recognized bad motives, bad thoughts. And he never offended the Spirit. He was sinless, the spotless Lamb of God. And so we see the physical descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, um, crowning him and empowering him for his kingly ministry. This was a visible sign to all who were watching that Jesus was in fact the prophesied, the promised anointed one of God. 
Here he is. God's answer, God's solution. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who addresses chaos. The long-awaited king, the Son of God. The second part of this divine authentication uh, wasn't visible, but it was audible. You see here, it was the affirmation of the Father. Audibly speaking, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This was the first time in Jesus' life that God the Father personally and audibly affirmed the identity and ministry of Jesus publicly. First time. He was 30 years old. There were two other occasions where the Father affirmed the identity and ministry of Jesus, but it was after this occasion. Matthew 17, 5, at the transfiguration. Remember, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter, be quiet. Listen to him. And then, of course, um, at his last sermon before his death, before his uh, arrest, rather, in John 12, the Father affirmed the same things. But this passage is an important one in confirming the identity of Jesus, being one with the Father, one with the Spirit, co-equal part of the eternity, uh, the Trinity, rather. Um, we could, of course, take a short detour and track the early church's identification of Jesus and how all these things came into focus for the early church concerning his divine origin and his purpose. But we're not going to do that because the church has already thoroughly dealt with that in the Nicene Creed. The very thing that we quoted here the last time we had the Lord's Supper together. You remember that? The Nicene Creed is the church's response to the baptism of Christ. This, in fact, is God, very God. The one whom John baptized. The one who took on our sin. When God calls Jesus his son, he's associating Jesus with the Godhead. Every time you see that title, the Son of God, in the New Testament, it is purposefully used to identify the Son in the Godhead. The divine nature of the Son is in view when you read that title. Son of God, God. Even the Jews understood this. Remember in John 5, they were about ready to stone Jesus and he said, why are you stoning me? And they said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father when he called himself the Son of God, making himself what? Equal with God. So when we read Son of God in the New Testament, it is intentionally designed to remind you of his divine origin of his participation in the Trinity, all right? The Father's testimony is that the Son is and always has been co-equal, co-eternal, co-everything, God. God of very God, the creed reads. And we embrace the creed because it reflects scripture. And then he says, you are my beloved Son, my beloved Son, not just my Son, but a son that I love. God the Father loves the Son. This is what Jesus said in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, that's his disciples who were watching, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father has always loved the Son. 
They've always been in relationship. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He has always been in a loving relationship with the Son. The Father has always loved the Son with divine, perfect love. Why? Well, that remains, the, 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 the full answer remains in divine secrecy. But the Son pleased the Father in everything. Everything the Son did, the Father rejoiced in. Every aspect of the Son's divine role and, and human life pleased the Father. But particularly with his role in reversing and solving the chaos caused by sin. This pleased the Father. He, the Son, will restore all things. And for this, the Father would say, I love the Son. He will restore all things to their original intended purpose. There will be no more gray hairs, no more death, no more chaos one day. Why? Because the Son, the second person of the Trinity, will restore all things and make all things new one day. No animal sacrifice in the Old Testament could have pulled that off. They didn't please God. They accommodated God. It was a temporary covering of sin until the Lamb of God, the Son of God, would take away sin for good. Not just cover it. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, how were you ransomed? Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This, was, this baptism <clears throat> was the second time that the Son witnessed the Holy Spirit hovering over the water. You ever think about that? This is the second time that the Son witnessed the Holy Spirit hovering over water. When was the first time? Genesis 1. And the Spirit hovered over the darkness and the water. Darkness and the water, I'll talk about this when I get back, is a picture of chaos. And it's a picture of chaos here in this baptism. An association with sinners, that's chaotic. And here the Holy Spirit, for the second time, hovers over the water. This is the new creation. The first was the first creation. This is the new creation here in these three verses. So, something special is happening here. Pay attention. This event in Mark 1, 9 through 11, was the inauguration of the new kingdom, the new king, the new heaven and the new earth that we see consummated in Revelation 21. And the sun was here at both events. Creation, new creation. Now let's look at the message of um, Jesus' baptism. The message of Jesus' baptism. And this really is just a way to make application to what I've been saying if you haven't been able to apply anything yet. Hopefully this will help. First is this. This is the message. We need a Savior and Jesus is Him. We need a Savior and Jesus is Him. 
The episode of Jesus' baptism confirms from God's perspective and from man's perspective that Jesus is our Savior. He came from heaven to save us from our sin and the chaos that we in our sin have created. Jesus came from heaven to deal with that stuff. Jesus heard, John heard, all who were there heard, this is my beloved son. It was a public declaration of the father's love for the son. It was an affirmation of the father's joy in the mission of the son, the son of God who came to seek and save the lost. This proclamation of love announced the father's acceptance of the son as the mediator, as the substitute, as the surety of the new covenant. Man, friends, this is so necessary for us to see. Jesus is our Savior, sent from heaven by the Father to reverse chaos in our lives at every level. We fall short of God's glory, don't we? Paul tells us in Romans 3, but because of our membership in Christ, the beloved Son, we are accepted, we are cherished, and one day we'll be fully restored. We are clothed with Christ and all his merit, Ephesians 1.6 says. So the question of application is, have you embraced this Savior? Is he your Savior? Or are you still trying to <laughs> resolve the conflict in your life? Are you still trying to make your own way, follow your own agenda, be your own savior as if that were possible? Or have you embraced God's answer? Have you embraced God's solution for all things chaotic? Secondly, the king has arrived. He's here. Before, before God became man, the prophets announced that he would come. We read our Old Testament. When Jesus was born, the angels announced his arrival. When he came out of Galilee, John the Baptist announced him. But here, when he began his ministry for which he was sent, Guess who steps up and introduces the Son? The Father. So it goes from prophets announcing to angels announcing to John the Baptist announcing to God himself announcing. Here he is. Jesus Christ is God's only solution to our sin and chaos. There are no other options, friends, although we try daily to find them. Because we don't like submitting to God or to anything or anyone because of our sin, but there are no other options. So the king of the universe became a man to accomplish only what a God-man could accomplish. He is most certainly a lowly servant, but he is also king of the universe. Are you following him? Have you embraced him? Are you following him? 
In order to benefit from God's epic plan to, in, to conquer sin and to end chaos, we must understand that God came to earth as one of us to live a perfect life that we cannot and die a death that we deserve. We must personally receive him as Lord and, and King, Lord and Savior, and then follow him the rest of our lives. Have we embraced him? Have we followed him? Have you embraced him? Are you following him? Pray with me. God, I ask that you would remove any hurdles in our lives, any sin, and all the accompanying chaos that keeps us from embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior and following him as our King. God, do this for us, please, in your mercy. Bring us into this place of submission, acceptance. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your participation in our world, for identifying with us, for taking on our sin, and then taking it to the cross. Father, I pray for each of us in this room that we would, we would daily determine to follow you, to cast our cares on you as we cast our sin on you. And for those who don't know you, Jesus, for those who have never embraced and have never considered following, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and, and change our heart, change the hearts of those so that they would see Jesus as who he is, our suffering servant and king. And it's his name we pray. Amen.